Today, we have a very unique and special episode. It started off as an organic conversation between two experts, which we recorded, and the nuggets of insights and analogies drawn make it one of my favorites and a must listen. So, who are these experts? We have Richard Tromans, the founder and editor of The Artificial Lawyer, an online legal tech news site, which is, in my opinion, the central platform for all things legal tech and things relating to law as a business. We also have with us Paul Lewis, a Linklater's partner and global co-head of innovation, who I admire as much for his extensive book collection in his office, which made me realize how much we have in common, as well as for his great understanding of legal tech and innovation. To kick off, Andrew Grove, who was the CEO of Intel, wrote about a concept called the inflection point in his book, Only the Paranoid Survive. An inflection point is the point in an industry where the fundamentals are about to change and there is going to be a massive shift. With all of the hype around legal tech and innovation and new business models, the discussion started off with thinking about whether the legal industry is undergoing such an inflection point. Richard Tromans started by saying that the change needs to be driven by clients, and until that is the case, there won't be massive change. Enjoy. So, the question is, um, who are the real clients? And uh, technically, they are the shareholders, um, the owners of the business, some of which may be in the business, like the CEO may have shares and so forth, and other members of the management. You know, they are the real clients, but they are disintermediated. They are not dealing directly with law firms. So, you know, we we have this sort of tricky problem that the, the legal function in many ways is left to itself. And they have lots and lots of stuff to deal with. I mean, they are incredibly busy. They're generally much, much smaller than the law firms. You know, I mean, Linklater's is many, many times bigger than the legal functions of most of its clients. You know, there's probably only one or two clients in the world that would have a legal department as big as a large city law firm, you know, large banks and so forth, and Google, etc. So that, that is an issue. So when you ask, you know, what do the clients want, it, it's, it's, a tricky, it's a very tricky question to answer because the truth is they don't actually know because they haven't stopped really sufficiently to really ask themselves that question. And the people who could answer that question to some degree are so busy just making things work. You know, I have a general counsel there and their staff, they don't have much time either. So if it wasn't for the advent of legal ops and all these conferences and so forth, and, you know, the problem, we would just carry on as usual. And you, as a law firm, are responding, you might say, incrementally to pricing pressure or procurement pressure from the clients. But all of this is almost happening kind of indirectly. You know, no one's like saying, stop all legal work, right? Down tools, right? Stop the conveyor belt. We are now going to redesign how everything is procured, how everything is made for us. That hasn't happened yet. So this big paradigm shift, we are, we are so far away from. So we, we mentioned change and some of the technologies that are driving that change as well. How can technology enhance what lawyers do, which at heart is to be trusted business advisors? So I think there's a huge amount. So I always use the anecdote, and it definitely marks me out as being uh, somewhat senior, which is when I joined Linklater, one of my jobs as a trainee was to do manual black lines. And so the uninitiated uh, black line is when you have a document that you're negotiating, the other side marks it up with some comments and changes and sends it back. And one of my jobs was to sit there with a fellow trainee and a ruler and a pencil and sit there comparing two documents and marking them up to see what the differences were, i.e. to see what the other side had added in. 
and each document of 100 pages or so took quite a long time to do. I would take the morning of my, uh, my training contract. Uh, and now there's a tool that can do that and has been for quite some time that can do that in two seconds. Uh, you know, do I think that that has in any way uh, affected the, the efficacy of the training of our, our lawyers today by not having to spend three hours doing that manual markup? Absolutely not. Um, yeah, so at the time, if someone had offered that to me, it would be magic beans. You know, it's fire. It's a tool that, gosh, how, how can you do this? It's fantastic. Um, and it's sort of incremental. It's prosaic almost. You don't really notice it's there. And I think you know, all the other tools we're rolling out now, you know, add-ins to Word that just you know, do one very simple task that currently takes trainees you know, X amount of time to do or lawyers or whatever to do, you know, qualified lawyers, uh, you do very, very quickly. So I think there's definitely an, an, uh, an incremental sort of augmenting of your life is just a lot easier as a lawyer. Your, your acting for clients is a lot more efficient if you have more tools, more data, etc., to make your life more streamlined. I think then there are potentially far more radical tools, and Richard, I suspect mm. you're going to touch on these. So, uh, natural language processing, sort of AI that starts to properly try and understand uh, you know, ontologies of legal systems, etc., can be helped, you know, be used in much more adventurous ways. We're a little bit further off on that, although uh, it's, it's a bit nascent and some interesting work going on. So, I do think it has the potential to, you know, to change the day to day life or experience of a lawyer a reasonable amount. I just don't think it's necessarily going to be in a moment where you suddenly go, gosh, that was the old and this is the new. I think it will, like most tech change, be, be sort of incremental. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. And the, I mean, fundamentally, what this all boils down to, and it's one of the ironies of artificial lawyer, you know, which, is, which in some ways is a paradoxical. Uh, title for a, for a news site. But fundamentally, what it is about is about making lawyers, ensuring that lawyers are real lawyers. Because what, what do you want from a lawyer? You want knowledge, expertise, hand-holding, you want responsibility and management. You want to say, I've got a problem, I don't understand what it is. You're meant to be an expert. Please help me. You know, I'm, you know like, like going to a doctor. I am looking to you for re to real help, real, real, you know, support, management of this issue. Get me to get me to a result, you know, and please don't overbill me. <laughs> but so much legal work now has, and this is in part because of the growth of leverage, which in itself is an interesting discussion. Because uh, of course, obviously, hundred years ago there was no real leverage. You had a partner and you had a, a junior clerk, and they kind of went up together like uh, you know, like a, a you know, like a Jedi master and the Padawan, whatever it was, you know. Um, the problem is, is that so much work is not really legal work anymore. I mean, half of all law firms' staff are not lawyers. It's funny, I was thinking about this this morning. You know, you could have a law firm with several thousand people, of which 50% are on the billable hour, and the other 50% don't do legal, um, legal work. But effectively, everyone together is contributing to the end result, which is value for clients. Um, now, if you look more deeply into that, again, if you probably 50% of those fee earners are also not arguably doing technically legal work at any one time. They're doing what is effectively legal admin. You know, I mean, is proofreading a document legal work? I don't know. Is doing basic legal research really legal work? You know, it's not really. I mean, someone could ring me up and say, hey, Richard, would you go and check out X, Y, and Z on Westlaw? And I'd be like, well, I don't really understand the concepts. I'm not a lawyer, but I'm intelligent enough, I hope, to figure out what it is that you want, and I could go and find it for you. So if I can do it without any regulatory oversight or experience, then is that really legal work? I'm not really sure it is. Um, and, and that's, I think, what the legal technology is doing now. It, it's sucking out this, this non-legal work, and what it's leaving behind is the true value. 
Now, that causes a challenge for law firms because law firms, a little bit like the oil price, um, has been going up and up and up and up and up in terms of leverage. And, you know, we started off with just partners and we had salaried partners and, you know, the associate group grew. Then we had paralegals. Then we had special process centers where you had paralegals who probably wouldn't ever even become associates. So the bottom of the pyramid has got bigger and bigger and bigger. This is because it's a huge work pyramid. And they're doing more and more uh, work that you might call legal admin. Now, if the technology sucks away the bottom of that pyramid, it's going to undermine the business model that lots of big law firms have become dependent on. So they then have to find more value through the, the complex work. And I don't think there's anything wrong in that because you have to remember that you know, law firms only exist on the basis that what they do has value to the clients. You know, we've all become a little bit kind of used to it you know, the way it is. And I mean, you know, even 20 years ago, leverage was a lot lower. Very, 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 very few firms had process teams. ALSPs didn't really exist, you know. So I think I'll, I'll just jump in. I think in some ways that is happening anyway, i.e. that that sort of trend, uh, recognising where the value is, etc. So if I look at our structure at the moment, uh, we're probably more, can choose whatever the best shape, more an obelisk than a pyramid, um, which reflects the fact that actually, like you say, the real value is someone with some experience, someone who can apply legal thinking to problems, someone who can be that interface of the, the legal expert with also you know, the, the client on the business side to ensure that everything fits smoothly. Uh, so, so we've already seen that, I think, happening in the industry. It's probably just happening relatively subtly over a, a number of different years. Yeah, uh, I mean, and, and, and this is it. I mean, it's, I mean, what, what is technology? Technology, fundamentally, in most cases, is, is a form of automation, at least in professional services, right? And what do you automate? You automate processes which are repeatable. Um, so there's a degree of volume, there's a degree of frequency, there's a degree of similarity. Um, that type of work is never going to be the highest value, super, super important work that you know, a partner might be doing. So you know, th there is, that's why it goes back to the point about we could be on the cusp of a new paradigm if the clients really just said, well, look, we've actually had time to sit down and think about this for the first time in about 100 years. And we're actually going to really come back to you now with some pointers, which is one, anything that we classify as process work, we're either not going to pay you for, or we're going to pay you such a low fixed rate that you might want to stop doing it, or you can find a way of doing it and you can keep it work. And everything else, well, we're going to have some very interesting discussions about value. And perhaps we can get rid of the bill blower because the valuable work that you do is so valuable, it seems crazy uh, to have a chat with a partner uh, for five minutes, which is actually worth to us maybe five million pounds, uh, and charge him, well, and, and be charged for one hour's, you know, five minutes worth of time, which is crazy. So we could get to a point where the entire model changes, and that, that really would be quite radical. Um, at that point, actually, you would get to the point where you would have to question whether the classic equity partnership model even works anymore and that actually operating as a corporate makes more sense but we are so far away from that <laughs> point because the traditional firms are going gangbusters despite what you might read in the press you know the big city firms are doing brilliantly they're making shed loads of money and they're doing well you know but it's always but 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 <laughs> so, so so i clearly have, I have a slightly different uh, perspective on it so i so i think Post-financial crisis, you definitely saw a lot of GCs 
push on the disaggregation front. So saying, look, we want to make sure we're paying the right law firms to the right level of work they did. So, so we've had that impetus now for 10 plus years in terms of, you know, if you think you have process work, we would like a, you know, so compare it to big law, you know, we would like a law firm that we think is cheaper, uh, you know, perhaps based somewhere else, et cetera, perhaps with a slightly different skill set to do that level of work. And they can work with you, big law firm, uh, who can do the more difficult bits, the bits that we're prepared to pay value for. So I think we have seen that creeping disintermediation over 10 years. Mm. And if we look, and we've done this a few times when we look at automation, you know, if you look at the most obvious repeatable uh, sort of jobs we have, actually, we've got far less of it than we once did. Um, yeah, we, so we've already been through that trend to, to quite a large degree. Now, you're right, we still would do some of it. And then the challenge for us and, and what we're exploring is, OK, well, how do we do that most efficiently to pass on those price savings to clients, etc.? Because there is a value sometimes in doing that work and having it tied together. So I don't, I don't disagree with the broad trend. I think at yeah, the level of, but I think we have been seeing it. I think it's mm. been incremental. I, I think most of the law firms in our sort of category, and certainly us, are in that point where we would like to think, uh, but, but the evidence we do internally seems to seems to uh, support it, that actually a large part of what we do is not most easily automatable. And I think that if you get to the next generation AI, mm. um, you know, where actually some of the things we think of as being cognitive, creative, et cetera, might turn out just to be yeah, experience and, and a machine can learn experience in 10 seconds as opposed to 20 years, maybe that then becomes the next boundary. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. But even before we get onto the sort of fancy, you know, next level AI, whatever you want to call it, there are just so many operational tasks which create costs. If we go back to the point that 50% of most large commercial law firms are staff, right? Why do law firms hire people who are not lawyers, right? Because there is stuff to be done that needs to be done, you know. Um, if that's, if some of those tasks can be automated, um, for example, I was at a hackathon the other day, and there was a no-code system. And there were about six different big international law firms, and each team created a, a little workflow to help replace and automate something, like a tiny, very, very, very narrow workflow. So there was one thing around collecting um, director information for IPOs, so which could then be filed with the SEC. It was a very, 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 very simple thing. It's the kind of thing you'd give to a junior lawyer. Uh, then another group came up with a system that would enable the IT team to help a partner figure out what technology the firm already had and what needs they had, and then to address it. You know, sort of um, like sort of Q and A system. But there's there's literally hundreds, maybe even thousands, of these very, very, very small little branches, little twigs of workflows, which could be automated, which could be improved. And then you've got stuff you know, around knowledge management, like instantly procuring the, the right piece of information. You know, as, you, as, you're, as you start to create a document, all the, all, all the relevant stuff appears because that appears through machine learning, for example. I mean, you've obviously got the review tasks, and then you've got the GCs on their side. They're using uh, automated review tools. So when they're looking at a third-party paper, it immediately reads it finds out what language needs to change and produces the, the new clauses and language and so forth. So there's, there's so much basic stuff. Well, to me, it looks basic. I mean, a lot of people regard just using, I don't know, word a little bit better as basic. But, you know, if we go beyond that, th there's an enormous amount of stuff that can be automated. And I, I, I mean, it's true. We have been getting there incrementally. I mean, but I think we're still, we're still in the, the foothills of the Himalayas, you know, I mean, the, I mean, my goal, and, you know, artificial lawyer's purpose is to drive that change. 
you know, I'd like to see everything that can be ethically and sensibly automated in the legal services sector and all professional services, not just for law, automated. Because it's a waste of human labour, it's a waste of capital, it's a bad allocation of capital in the economy if you look at it from a macroeconomic perspective you've got a bunch of very clever very educated people whose education costs an enormous amount of money being paid very large salaries to do work that could be easily automated that, that to me seems inefficient yeah and I agree with that I think in some ways that goes full circle back to my starting point which is mm. it was inefficient for me to be doing manual black lines uh, and you know, technology came along and helped so I'll give, I'll give one more example so this is one from a few years ago within, within our organisation where one of our associates in a, in a capital markets area was frustrated that there was a sort of fairly robotic job in terms of going and trying to get data from a particular stock exchange. So uh, as his know-how project, we sort of tend to assign uh, knowledge projects to people sort of during the year. He asked if he could do something around effectively coming up with a computer program that could scrape the data from you know, the relevant stock exchange's website and came up with a program that worked. And you know, that was a fantastic example because that individual went off and you know, learned enough how to do it to, to make it work and so on. But actually, you know, what you're saying is scaling that up and that's what we're trying to do organisationally. So you, know, you don't need to go off and teach yourself Python to be able to do that. Mm. You come up with the idea, someone else goes off and puts that bit of code together and like you say, you aggregate up. So I think you're right, there is... There, I think law firms, and I suspect others will be the same as us, you know, we've been progressively looking at those low-hanging fruit and trying to do just that effectively. So are there little processes we can do to make sure that the lawyers are doing what the lawyers should be doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I, mean I understand that one of the questions you wanted to ask is what book we would recommend. And one thing, one, one thing that I always recommend to everyone is to read the chapter by Adam Smith, you know, founder of modern capitalism in some ways, at least the theory of it. Um, the chapter is The Pin Factory which is really a study of specialization in manufacturing. And what he did, you know, went to, visited a pin factory and he saw how different people were using different machines and different processes to make this what appears to be a very, very simple thing. So all the way from a piece of a lump of metal, all the way through various hammering and stretching and shaping and melting and bending and all these things. And all the end, you've got a pin. And he was just, it wasn't so much the process as a whole that he was fascinated with. He was fascinated with the way that the process was um, disaggregated and broken into ind independent tasks. And then those independent tasks were joined up and looking at which bits could be automated, which bits couldn't. And, you know, that holds true for everything, you know, it, and it's never been more true for the law. You know, there is just so much that could be done that isn't being done. And, it, you know, and it's, I don't blame people for not doing it because there is no incentive. The client pressure is very small. Many of the clients don't know what can be done. And, you know, GCs don't generally have to pass an exam on legal technology to win, you know, that role. You know, they generally have to show they're great managers, that they understand legal risks, they can work at a high level on a, on a top team, they can handle the stress and all that kind of stuff. You know, they don't have to sit an hour-long exam going, do you know the, uh, you know, the purposes and possibilities of legal technology? <laughs> you know, and, you know, why should they? Um, although I, I would argue they probably do know. So it's... And I think, I, I suppose, jumping from that to this, almost the, the, the anterior question, which is then, okay, so what do lawyers... How is this right now? I'm, I'm now taking the questions you have on your list, but... Yeah, so what do we look for in lawyers? You know, what, 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 what thing is uniquely human? What thing uh, it will be very hard for robots to automate away 
people who you don't want to. And if I look at my day to day, you know, has been throughout. I'm a capital markets lawyer. One of my jobs is taking uh, you know instructions from my clients as to how they want to express a particular commercial concept and writing it. And I would like to think. And, yeah, there's always a chance that someone else comes and tells you actually no it's very simple but yeah there is an element of creativity around that in terms of being able to understand the concept being able to render it on the page being able to see permutations the client might have thought of uh being able to express things in a way where you know legal language is not always black and white mm. you know you're, you're playing with with imprecision sometimes you know enough of the case law you know how other products work etc and yeah there is a moment in that when actually if you've mastered it it feels you know it feels quite good it's like the flow type thing where actually you know that is the creative piece you know and lawyers you know no doubt have somewhat of a bad reputation for not being particularly creative actually i think in terms of mm. what we're asked to do in, in my world or in transactions mergers acquisitions etc yeah, there's a huge amount of creative thought that goes in there and i think that yeah, the sort of duality of both being able to understand and use the tech to to you know help you be a better lawyer, uh, but also then to have those creative elements. I think that's that's a key skill set for a lawyer going forward. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we need lawyers. If you're going to live in a rules-based society, particularly one with lots of contracts flying around, you've got to have lawyers. You know, absolutely. So the question is, how do we get lawyers to be the best lawyers they can be for the benefit of society as a whole? And how can we suck out all the stuff that stops them from being able to do that and also waste money inside the economy? How do we, how do, we do that? And I think we're on the right road. You know, we really are. We are on the way to doing that. And I think the most successful law firms long term, you know, like Linklater's and so forth, you know, they will keep adapting, you know, because they always have. You know, if you go back 20 years, go back to your earliest point about uh, globalization, Linklater's was one of the very first with Linklater's and Alliance. Yeah. You know, it didn't sit on its hands and then think, oh, well, you know, let's wait to see what happens with globalization. Maybe by 2020 we'll, we'll do something. It just went, right, we can see which way things are going. We need to move. And they just went and did it and then everyone else went and did it like Freshfields and everyone else and I think that's what's going to happen now really but keeps going back down to the clients you know the problem is it takes two to tango this this is a symbiotic relationship law firms do not exist on their own you know <laughs> they have no purpose there is literally no purpose at all for law firms to exist unless clients are sending them thorny complex commercial issues to deal with you know um has to, the real change has to come from the clients and as mentioned the clients because they're relatively small teams they're incredibly busy they're disconnected quite often from the rest of the business they don't have the same economic pressures uh, that let's say logistics or procurement might have then you know they don't have the support they need I mean even if you, if you look at the purchase of legal technology it's, it's a mad thing isn't it that you know technology in the procurement team it's called technology in the logistics team, it's called technology. The legal team, it's called legal technology. Which is, why is it called legal technology? It's because it's like, if it wasn't called legal technology, they wouldn't buy it. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, and it's quite possible there may be exactly the same tools sitting somewhere in the tech stack of the overall business. You know, you might find out that the sales team is already using a system for reading all of its contracts very quickly. Because the sales team is the place where all of these contracts are being created. And yet, strangely, the, the legal team uh, is completely, you know, doesn't know that, you know. Uh, it's, that has to end, really. I mean, in, in many ways, the law firms, I think, are doing as much as they can to get up to speed. They're doing a lot of very hard work. And it, it's the clients who are not. But again, it's very hard to blame the clients because they're structured in such a way as to make it extremely difficult for them to change anything. So, so then looking at that from a different angle, um, so... 
you know, the world of big law is, is fiercely competitive. There are lots of very good law firms out there, uh, and clearly we're, we're one of those at the very, at the very top of that. Um, but you know, it is competitive, and for every client mandate, there'll be a competitive pitch process, etc. So I suppose there's another angle, which is I know, analogized to you know, the days before smartphones, and here we talk about Blackberries earlier, etc. It's almost the being able to go and say you didn't know you needed this. You didn't know that this was going to, you know, be a much better way of delivering the services you want. Um, but we are showing you that it is a much better way. So you know, there is another angle. Clients can ask for something and ask in a granular way, and, and they may or may not do that. But equally, you know, the competition should drive you to a point where you say, actually, in order to win that mandate, I need to be better than my competitor. Um, so I need to do things in a more efficient way. I need to give better data. I need to design uh, my processes in a more effective way. I need to design the way I communicate legal information in a better way. Mm. And I think that's a, that's another crucial angle because the law firm that delivers the best product, you know, logically should be at a good price, mm. should be the one who succeeds in winning more of the share of billable hours or more of the mandates, actually. That's not even get wedded to a billable hour. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, and there's a huge opportunity for, for firms to get ahead and to carve out a, a, a greater market share, deeper client relationships. And one of the interesting things about legal technology is obviously it's fundamentally based on digital data, digital data that's coming from clients. So if you can build very, very, very strong workflows, digital workflows with your client base, in some ways you're, you're tying them in in a way that didn't really happen before, you know, when, when briefs were just mailed or sent over by bicycle courier. You know, the, the relationship once the job was over could kind of fray and part more easily. Whereas if you're really joined at the hip with, with data, you know, it, it ties you together much more closely and it also provides an opportunity. So if you could say to the GC, well, look, you know, we're actually not working on the next two or three matters, but if you kind of bungers for data, we can keep analyzing it for you. Uh, you know, we see that there's a whole bunch of stuff going on inside your in-house legal function that, you know, we spotted certain patterns. We saw, we've, we've seen certain clauses in certain contracts that you're signing again and again that are causing issues or this, you know, whatever it is. Um, and I, I think that could be exploited in, in a positive way, you know, much, much more than it is. Um, and that's interesting because when you get a kind of like bank or sort of insurance company relationship with your client base, mm. You know, and I think law firms have have got a lot better. They they over the last ten years they've massively reduced their the, the, the clients they work with and try to focus more on on the lot, some of the larger ones. Um, but if you look at the big four, I think it's worth talking about them. And one thing the big four is very good at once they get into a client, they really get into a client, and they don't let it go. They they try and understand everything about that client, you know, and stay with it. And then they they broaden out what they can offer. You know, so that client will never go away. And law firms have not always been brilliant at that. Yeah, I suspect for the big four, it originally came from the audit relationship. Clearly that now, mm. that now has its challenges or is impossible. But you're right, they do have that mentality. And law firms need to have that mentality. I think, yeah, we are here to serve clients and we want, yeah, we want those deep relationships with clients. I mean, on, on the previous point, um, so I'll give an example internally. And, and this is just what I was very pleased with over the last month or so. Uh, but yeah, it's back to the data point of uh, I was looking at an internal project and it was effectively about understanding you know, what, what people are doing within the firm and what they're acting on and uh, you know, whether there are pockets of potential availability and so on. And I was articulating, I wanted some sort of model that would show me you know, very intuitively what was happening in the firm and I explained it very badly to the team I was working with 
um, and didn't really expect a huge amount. And, you know, two weeks later, they came back without having told me they were going to do this. And said, oh, we've talked to our data visualization team, and they've used you know, one of the software tools to do this. We've built this dashboard for you. And I looked and thought, that's exactly what I wanted. I didn't know that's what I wanted. Mm. I didn't articulate it very well. But they came back and showed me something. And I started going, that's fantastic. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know I wanted it. As soon as I see it, I know it's exactly what I want and you know, what we can use in terms of managing the, the function that I run. And I think that's, that's the challenge for us. It's the turning around to clients who are open-minded and saying, actually, mm. look, let, let us show you what the world can be as opposed to what you've been used to. But then also having the technical ability. You know, that wouldn't have happened were it not for the fact that we've got two or three people who are brilliant at using you know, this particular data visualization tool and actually can see it in a way that I just couldn't articulate. So I think that, that is, you know, I'm very excited about what we can do with things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and a lot of this comes down to something very, very simple, which is time. That, you know, in an environment that is so hard pressed, uh, where work is coming in, you know, from left field, you know, suddenly you get a phone call at six o'clock in the morning, we're doing a merger, we need you now, drop everything, you know, your, all your plans go out the window. In an environment like that, it's very, very, very hard to stop for a few days and figure out what it is that you can build for a client. And it's quite tricky for, you might say, a traditional IT team. And, you know, obviously, Linklaters and other large firms now have very advanced innovation teams. But traditionally, if you had, like, you know, it wasn't the IT team's job to try and understand the legal issues of the client base and try and f- come up with solutions for it. And it wasn't the lawyer's job to try and figure out specific areas of technology that they could integrate into their legal offering. So that has been a challenge, and you know, hence we've seen the, the growth of innovation teams yes. and internal developers. And, you know, and, and I think it's very early days for that. I mean, Nakoda is a great example. Yeah, so, so for those who uh, say Nakoda is... Um it is a effectively internal bespoke legal tech delivery outfit and over the last year and a half or so its flagship product has been designing with a client called ISDA uh, who's the trade association for the derivatives industry a product called ISDA Create which is essentially an online document negotiation document creation platform so clients who need to negotiate with each other certain types of contracts can go and uh, effectively select particular electrons online can compare and contrast them online you have a data record of all the negotiation at the end of it you can press a button and the document is generated and there's what's known as a structured data model uh, which is basically all the data that comes out is already structured can be fed into bank systems as opposed to traditional and uh, uh, sort of doing you know, air apostrophes at this dumb legal documents which are static mm. and uh, where someone has to go and extract the data in this the data is already dynamic it's you know you've created the contract by inputting the data the data then goes off to feed other systems so it has been incredibly innovative it's one of the first of its type uh, and uh, i do think that you know a certain element of those sorts of projects is going to be the future of of this sort of legal delivery absolutely Throughout that conversation, we touched on so many different points, you know, the automation of processes, data, um, and different types of technologies as well. Um, So following from that, to what extent will lawyers need to arm themselves with a new set of skills in this new new way of delivering services to clients? And um, related to that, what will the future lawyer look like? So Hamza, when when we talked about this, you told me about the T-shaped lawyer. Um, so why don't you tell us about that? Because I think that summarises my thoughts, but uh, but you articulated yeah. it much better than I did. Okay, so um, the T-shaped lawyer is a concept where um, a professional has to have a core grounding in in their profession, which is the the vertical part of the T, and then 
to go beyond that, there's the horizontal part of the T, and that would entail having um, an understanding and skill sets in various other disciplines as well to augment your your core grounding in the profession that you're you're based in. That's an area where I thought a lot of the success for for lawyers is going to come from. So I love that. Um, I think that's completely right in terms of, you know, clearly to be a good lawyer, you need to be a good lawyer. You need to know your technical side, you need to be good with clients, etc. But I think you know, the danger is you get into one, you know, just if you're just in that vertical, you don't see what else is out there. So I, I do think to be a good lawyer, you need to be, you need to ingest a huge amount of information around what else is out there. You need to be curious. Uh, you need to think about, so the topics we've talked on, you know, legal design, uh, you know, computer programming, you know, EQ, all that sort of stuff. And if I look at, if I look at me, I'm a bad computer programmer, but I can computer program. I'm a bad legal designer, but I can think about legal design. I'm a bad, actually, hopefully I'm a reasonably good project manager. But, uh, you know, but all of those things, I can see enough along a spectrum to be able to turn around to someone and say, okay, but what about if you put this thing that this other industry does with this thing, could we do it a bit differently? And I think that's the mark of, uh, well, A, a good innovator within sort of a law firm, but more generally a good lawyer. You know, you've got a much wider skill set than purely just being good at being a lawyer. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. I mean, totally reiterate the point about, you know, what we need in the world are really good lawyers and nothing is going to change that. Um, in terms of the technology and the way the market is changing, I think one thing that lawyers could do, and perhaps this needs to be trained in uh, at law school, is to understand that a significant chunk of what lawyers do, whether they're in the commercial sector or the public sector or wherever, is produce products for the clients. You know, services are wrapped around the, the products. You know, there are some service streams such as pure advice, hand-holding, project management, which are literally they stand on their own. But uh, a lot of the service side is wrapped around delivering products, contracts. You know, um, that delivery can be improved, and it, it's to get people to think, not just design thinking in terms of how can we make this contract for this employment contract for example easily readable not just to the lawyers of the company but to the employee themselves who probably doesn't understand a single concept that's written in that contract um, not just that but design thinking around the production and really like looking at it as if you're an executive at Toyota and you're building you know the latest model of car and going right realistically ethically and commercially what can we automate what can we improve where can we collect data to improve insights into the production of this contract the next time we make it where can we store that information in a way that can be downloaded very very quickly and easily and sensibly um, are there ways that we can work uh, hand in hand with the clients could we create a special portal where we just you know co-create everything they need together you know um, can we cut the distance can we you know can we sort of like you know shorten the the, the bridge between us and the clients. There's, there's many, many, many ways of thinking about these things. And you know, where can we extract legal labour? You know, where where can we extract legal labour and just leave behind a crystallised product that only needs a certain amount of input? All of that thinking, and that's that's where we have to focus now. I mean, technologists and innovation people. There's not a lot of advice and input they can give Paul. You know, in terms of being a great lawyer, that's you know that has happened already. You know, uh, but everything else can change. You know, um, there is, and, and going back to the original point, we, we've just started. 
And, and the funny thing is, is that there's been way, there was a huge wave of hype and excitement about AI, understandably. And then there's been a bit of a disillusionment because it hasn't been able to solve every problem. But that really is just like the first phase. That's like the first engagement in what is like a hundred year war. <laughs> you know, I mean, we have so many, many, many battles and engagements to go, you know, uh, to get where we need to get to. It's interesting if you, so the trend probably 10, about 20 years ago, so for about 10 years around, you know, what else do you need in legal education? And the answer was, we need lawyers who can better understand their clients' businesses. And the focus there was around MBA-style learning. It was around, okay, understanding what makes businesses tick, understanding accounting, understanding you know, financial concepts and so on, which I do think is important. Um, but I think this is another way of understanding both your own business and your client's business, because actually this is just thinking about, okay, how do I make my business more effective? And your lawyers need to remember they aren't just lawyers. They are mm. lawyers who are business people in an organization that is a business um, serving businesses so actually having that understanding what might another business find useful and how can I make my own business more efficient and effective uh, etc is I think is another way of thinking beyond just the confines of I need to be very good at knowing my contract law exactly and just just the last thing really I I think that 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 is the key point which we kind of touched on briefly earlier which is is the external law firms to some degree have to help the legal function stop being a separate entity and so to provide advice because at the end of the day going back to the question who is the end client the end client are the shareholders and so forth and then even beyond that effectively you've got the the clients of your client the customers of your client you know and that's who you're trying to help this is where all of your work eventually filters down you know to some guy on the clapham omnibus you know that's how it all works you know and, and it, it's it's helping the in-house legal team to sort of reintegrate with the business so you know for example a, a contract to a lawyer looks like a legal document to the head of sales it's uh, it's a blueprint of all their financial obligations uh, both inwards and outwards from, from the business so can the law firm who effectively is on the cutting edge the front edge of receiving all this information think differently about these contracts. And I'm not suggesting that you become sort of business consultants, but I think there is a kind of more than law aspect. And, and we see that, so Instacrate is a really good example of that, where the things you're extracting as your structured data points are exactly that. You know, So it's recognizing that a contract is just one part of an operational flow in terms of understanding who needs to pay what to whom by when or deliver what and you know, how do you calculate that. And it is just you're storing the key commercial data and to, to the you know, from that perspective, the legal verbiage is just legal verbiage from the non-lawyers. Mm. You know, it's, but it's within a carrier that then you know, houses the structured data. So yeah, it's an interesting flip of mentality from a lawyer who will think the contract is the most important thing and in the entire transaction, whereas to everyone else, it's just you know, it's the legal stuff. And what really matters is what's in that document in terms of when do I have to deliver something by when, not you know, what my remedies are if it goes wrong primarily. That's uh, the one percent case as opposed to the ninety-nine percent case. Exactly. I mean, the, you might say that the, the the DNA of any company is held within the commercial uh, relationships that are crystallised in its contracts, right? Uh, that, that, that is the DNA. The, you might say that the contract is like a cell and the, the lawyers take the whole cell and they examine the whole thing. The, the, the bit that's really, really important, generally, as you say, in most cases to the clients, is, is just that little strand of DNA that explains you know, its relationships with the external world um, and then, you know, people I don't know I mean I get the feeling that a lot of law firms don't think that way because the, the person of the, on the other end of the telephone is another commercial lawyer you know um, so yeah so you, you get trapped in that bubble 
So I think it's a very, very exciting time to be a lawyer. And I think just one last thing about the future of young lawyers, and we haven't really touched on this, which is that I think there's going to be many, many more pathways to effectively do a degree, go to law school, and then end up in a big law firm. And then you're going to find that there's four or five different career pathways. Uh, and only a couple of those might actually involve actually practicing the law. You know, there's going to be, I think the innovation teams are just going to grow and grow. Yeah, I agree. And we're already seeing that. And now to the final question. Um, for the benefit of some of our listeners, um, could you tell us the name of a book that that has changed your perspective in some way and that you think would be relevant to, to students and, and graduates? Well, I, I would reiterate the point. Adam Smith, read, yeah. read Everything and Anything by Adam Smith, uh, particularly the, the chapter on uh, the pin factory. I would also read, and with a caveat, obviously, because I'm not a communist, uh, nor do I uh, encourage you to be one, but I, I strongly encourage you to read Karl Marx, um, Das Kapital, or anything else that he's written um, or wrote. Um, because despite his, uh, you might say, misplaced faith in certain uh, political strategies, uh, one thing he did understand is the means of production. The, and the fact that, you know, everything in the material world is produced. And understanding how labor fits together with capital to, to produce an end product. Um, you'll probably end up completely disagreeing with most of what he says and that's good. However, it, it will, I think, illuminate very nicely the, some of the key points that I think lawyers in the future will have to understand and you know, to, to, to really understand law as a manufacturing process. So the danger with going after that is this is a bit like when you do your, you know, your favourite uh, favorite music and mm. mine is about to be the equivalent of the Girls Aloud version of uh, compared to the, 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 the rather high-brow choices of yours. So I'm going to pick two. How's that? I'm just going to. Uh, so one link to this, uh, reading recently actually, uh, Rebel Ideas, Matthew Syed, Times columnist. Uh, it's very good. Talks about diversity of thought, diversity in teams, the you know the the collective versus the individual, and how the collective is uh, produces better results. I think it's a fascinating book, actually. And this isn't my second choice, but also his previous book, Black Box Thinking, about failure and learning from failure. I think is, is an incredibly good book. Synthesizes a lot of a lot of academic work that's out there. And then my sort of guilty pleasure, just because I think this is a great book about uh, doing things differently, thinking a different way, coming over failure, etc. Is a it's a rowing book. Um, I'm not a rower. I'm in the South Wales Valley in which I grew up. Uh, it wasn't the done thing. I lost my accent. Uh, but it's a book called The Assault on Lake Casitas. Uh, it's about the 1984 US rowing team and someone called Brad Allen Lewis and how he overcame what looked like the shock of not being in that team. Uh, and again, as a book of fighting against the odds, doing things differently, uh, thinking in a very non-linear way. It's an excellent book, and I won't spoil the result by telling you what he did or didn't achieve at the Olympics. Well, thanks a lot for that. We've really enjoyed the conversation. You know, we've touched on so many different topics in that, in that episode, and thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks Thank very much, Hamza. Thank you. So there you have it. That was the final episode in the first series for the Linkubator podcast, we hope you enjoyed it as much as we have and that you learnt from the many disruptive thinkers we had on the show. Thanks for listening.